from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Friends, our text uh, for us is from Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 13 to 32. Listen to God's word to you and to me. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleophas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening up the scriptures to us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed, so that we would be different people than those who came into this worship service today, no matter where we are in the world, that you would meet us there and that we would be transformed 
more into the likeness of Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week we launched a sermon series that's going to take us through the end of July. The series is entitled Second Wind, Second Light. As we continue to press on in this pandemic, many of us have become spiritually and psychologically and physically and emotionally tired. Uh, we may even say we're exhausted in these days, exhausted in trying to deal with the loss, trying to deal with these odd schedules we are keeping, trying to, to deal with the disruption, the the unforeseen responsibilities that have now come our way, trying to deal with the economic peril, all the uncertainty that remains in the shadow of this time. For many friends of God and, and followers of Jesus Christ, keeping the faith has also made us tired in this time. So many are weary and and worn out. We, we've kept the faith, or at least we've, we've tried to keep the faith. It's been a struggle. It's been imperfect, but we're trying. We've maintained hope. We've sought to love God. We've sought to be loved by God. We've sought to love our neighbors. We've sought to love ourselves in these days. As we've kept the faith, I've been sensing in my own life, I've been sensing for the life of the church that, that we need a second wind, that we need a restoration, that we need a renewal so that we may continue to be what I'm calling second light people. Last week we talked about this. Jesus is the first light. He is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome him. And yet he also says to any would-be follower that you too are the light of the world. And in that way we are a second light. We are called to let our light shine before others so that God would be glorified and praised. And so I think in these days and these times, we, we need restoration, we need renewal for the work of ministry, for the work of the church, and for the work of our everyday lives. We need renewed energy, we need renewed intelligence, we need renewed imagination, and we need a renewal of love. We need a second wind. And so for that renewal and, and that restoration, this series meets us. This series invites us to turn our attention to the first post-resurrection Christian community as it's described for us by the writer known as Luke. His is a two-volume work. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume, second volume rather, is what we commonly refer to as the Acts of the Apostles. He's the author of both of these books. And in this series, we're going to turn our attention to his narrative and look at it bit by bit along the way in the hopes that we will discover how the first Christian community got their second wind. 
after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, how was it that they had a renewal of breath, a renewal of life in their time, what that looked like, even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of volatility? How did the early Christians receive this second wind, and what did it look like for them to be a second light in their world, in their context? So we're turning to the author Luke. And one of the things I think is important for us to know about Luke's writing and his style, one of the key elements of his storytelling is the way he often uses road imagery. Before uh, Jack Kerouac taught us that the road is life and, and taught us that when we're on the road, everything is ahead of us. Before Jack Kerouac, there was the gospel writer Luke. As Princeton Seminary professor Eric Barreto once explained regarding Luke's fondness in using this road imagery, he says, Luke's narratives take us on the road frequently. A journey brings Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. A road is the narrative setting for the parable of the Good Samaritan. A road leads the prodigal back home to his father. Jesus sets his eyes toward Jerusalem and travels a road that lasts 10 chapters in the gospel. He goes on to say that, that the roads will continue in the book of Acts, where, for instance, Paul encounters the risen Jesus on a road to Damascus. Barreto summarizes Luke's use of road imagery when he says there is something about travel that evokes Luke's literary and theological imagination. There is something about roads, the way roads bring us together, the way roads can pose a danger to us all, the way roads become a symbol of faith on the move. Well, the story that's set before us today takes place on a road. The story is commonly referred to as the road to Emmaus story, and this story, the events of this moment, take place actually on Easter Sunday. Luke writes, now on the same day, and what he's referring to that same day is the day when the women went to the tomb to discover that the stone had been rolled away and that his body was not there. The two travels that are, travelers that are introduced to us are headed back to Emmaus from Jerusalem on Easter Sunday. Perhaps these two travelers were siblings. Perhaps these two travelers were, were friends. Perhaps it was a parent and a child. Perhaps it was a couple. We're not exactly sure. But what we do know is that these two were discussing all the things they had witnessed and experienced the previous week. We also know, because Luke tells us, that they were part of a group affiliated with the apostles. And if that was the case, if they were part of that early body that Jesus was, was calling to follow those who he formed in the way of the gospel, these individuals had to be absolutely exhausted. Remember, the week they had just lived through began with Jesus entering Jerusalem hailed as a king, and, and it ended with his crucifixion and the sealing of his tomb. Their hopes were absolutely crushed. Their expectations were unmet. And I have a hunch that on that road, they were trying to make sense of everything, 
Where was God in this? We were hoping that, that, that this Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We didn't think it would end in the grotesque finality of a crucifixion. We didn't expect it to turn out this way. I'm sure that many of us are able to resonate with that kind of wondering and that kind of inquiry. Even in my own life, I, I thought we would be in this space for worship on Easter Sunday. I, I thought we would be ordaining and installing elders and ministry leaders this Sunday, today on May the 3rd, as we pray for them and lay hands on them and ordain them into their work of ministry. I thought we would have celebrated our, our confirmation class last Sunday. And as I've heard and connected with so many of you, I know there's expectations that have been unmet in all of our lives. We, we thought we would have the, the spring musical or the concert or the showcase or a graduation or a sports season or prom at school. We thought we would have kids actually attending school. We thought parents would be going to work. We, we thought we'd have the masters and, and baseball. We thought that this job that we had was, was secure. We thought our financial future was stable. We thought we would get to celebrate a loved one's birthday. We thought we'd get to see our grandkids. We thought that we'd be in the room when our spouse or a relative or our friend drew their last breath. We thought we'd be able to have a funeral to remember them and to give thanks to God for them and to say goodbye. We, we thought things were gonna work out. We thought things would be normal. We didn't expect it to turn out this way. For people of faith, as it was for Cleophas and their companion, we can't help but wonder and inquire, where is God in all of this? What is God doing. And in our community of faith here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, we call this wondering by a specific name. We, we call this wondering theological formation. When we talk about theological formation in the life of our faith, it, we, we think about a disciplined pursuit of a deeper understanding and relationship with God through inquiry and discernment. It, it's faith-seeking understanding. It's the willingness to wonder. It's the willingness to ask hard questions of God. It's the willingness to ask hard questions of ourselves and of our community. It's a road we travel in the pursuit of truth and meaning, a road we travel in the pursuit of belonging and purpose. And sometimes we people of faith, we, we find ourselves on that road completely befuddled and confused and disoriented by what we've seen, by what we've experienced, or what we're living through in real time. I mean, take for example this crisis in this pandemic, all the information, all the data, all the stories that continually come out minute by minute, hour by hour, and think about how confusing and sometimes contradictory all of it can actually be. 
We want answers, right? We want to understand. We want to be able to interpret. We want to be able to, to know. And, and we want to know what we're experiencing and how to navigate it. And, and we want to do what's right for public health. We want to do what's right for our economy. We want to do what's right for our neighbors, especially our most vulnerable neighbors. And so whether it's a question about this pandemic or whether it's a question about the nature or the presence of God or the work of God in times like these, we don't always know how to interpret. We don't always know how to integrate. We don't always know how to act. I think this type of bewilderment was not lost on Cleophas and their companion. And we're actually let in on the confusion they're experiencing as we join them on the journey to Emmaus. We're told as they walk that road, a stranger joined their company. We're let in immediately as to the identity of this stranger. This is the risen Christ who has met them on the way, but they don't know it. Luke says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I've often wondered why is it that their eyes were, were kept from recognizing him? What impeded them from identifying this one as their rabbi and their Lord? We can only speculate, but perhaps it was all the confusion. Perhaps it was all the grief, plus the disorientation, plus the uncertainty, plus the thousand questions and more that were rattling in their minds as to what just happened the week before and what it means for their life today and what it means for their future. And as the stranger joined their walk, he, he actually played dumb to all the events that took place in Jerusalem the previous week. And so Cleophas takes it upon himself to offer a little bit of a recap and following the review, the stranger actually begins to interpret. The stranger begins to integrate all the events of Holy Week within the larger mission and larger story God was telling in and for the world. The stranger was making meaning of the incarnation. The stranger was making meaning of the crucifixion. The stranger was pointing to Jesus of Nazareth as the one that the people were hoping for. He was the one to save. And so satisfying was the stranger's interpretation that Luke tells us that Cleophas and their companion begin to literally, the Greek says, literally twist his arm to compel him to stay with them. And so he remains. They want to know more from this stranger. They want to understand. They want to have insight. They want to make sense of everything that they were feeling and experiencing. And what they received in that moment was far more than they could have ever imagined. As this stranger Christ takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. And at that very moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized that this one was the risen Christ and he had been with them all this time. And then Luke says in a flash, he's gone. But don't miss this, friends. In that one singular moment of communion, everything was clear. Everything came into focus. Dare we say that their understanding in that single moment was whole. Dare we say that their understanding perhaps was even complete? See, I have a hunch that for all of us, 
there have been and there will be moments of clarity. There will be moments in our lives of truth, moments of of understanding, moments where we have seen and experienced something that makes absolute sense, something where the puzzle pieces begin to, to come together and form a picture that helps us understand ourselves or to understand God or to understand the world in which we are living. All the suffering, all the joy, all the loss, all the gain, the hope and the fears, the life and the death, the faith and the doubt, all of it comes together with clarity and crystallizes as pure of a moment as being in Christ's presence as he breaks the bread. In my preparation for this sermon, I I was thinking about times when I have experienced this kind of eye-opening awareness, this kind of understanding, this kind of clarity, this kind of, of theological formation that brings a certain measure of assurance that that I was in the presence of Christ himself, that I was understanding myself or God or the world in an accurate and fresh way. And as I was thinking about those moments in my own life, I, I kept thinking about, and this is certainly not accidental, I kept thinking about the 8 a.m. chapel communion service, how I miss that service. How I miss sharing communion across the services with this body. But when I think about that 8 a.m. communion service, I have to tell you there's something very clarifying about the experiences I've had in that worship setting. People from all walks of life attend that service, and, and we all share the same meal, and we all share the same fellowship, and it gives me clarity, and it gives me understanding of what the kingdom of God actually ought to look like, and what it does actually look like. I remember one service when one of our members gave her arm to a visually impaired visitor, and she led him to the table for communion. That moment gave me clarity on how grateful I am for every person in my life who gave me their arm along the way and who led me to tables of grace and in the presence of God. I thought about a woman with terminal cancer who was basically carried down the center aisle of that chapel to receive communion, a communion that would be her final communion on this side of eternity. And that moment gave me clarity. That moment gave me understanding of of what kind of roads covenantal love is willing to walk. And it gave me a deep sense of assurance and peace that in life and in death, we belong to God. I remember one service, there was a visitor sitting in the very first pew in the chapel and I was halfway through my sermon, about halfway through, when all of a sudden he, he stood up and he came to the communion table, which is right in front of the pulpit. And he stood there and he looked at me and I stopped my sermon. And then he looked down at the elements that were prepared on the communion table. He stared at them for a, a few seconds and then he reached down, he took a piece of bread and he looked at it and he ate it. 
And he turned right around, walked down the center aisle and right out of the chapel. And in that moment, there was a clarity and an understanding that the church should be ready to give the people what they need when they need it because we worship a God who gives us exactly what we need when we need it. In my mind's eye, I see the worshipers who have consistently gathered in that chapel and in Fifield Hall and in this beautiful sanctuary across the years, faithfully worshiping week in and week out. Their faithfulness, your faithfulness, your humility and joy and openness to know God and to make God known brings clarity to my own understanding of what it means to be a Christian. But here's the thing. Those moments of, of clarity and those moments of understanding end as quickly as Jesus vanished from that room with those travelers to Emmaus, right? Because there's still a disorienting and confusing and misunderstood world outside the chapel doors. There's way more mystery then there is certainty in faith and in life. Even so, we don't forget those moments of clarity. We, we don't forget those moments of understanding that we have had in the past. We, we don't hide or keep silent about those moments on the road when we've seen Christ with our own eyes. The verses that actually end the Emmaus Road story were not included in what I read for you earlier. I wanted to actually save them until now to close this sermon. Listen to how that story ends. Luke says that that same hour, the travelers got up and they went back to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. And those 11 and those companions were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. And then the travelers told them what had happened on the road and how Jesus had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. You see, those moments of knowing, friends, those moments of clarity, those moments of understanding are meant to be shared. We get back out on the road and we share and we tell what we've seen of the risen Christ and what we know of God. This is our work. This is our collective ministry. This is one of the ways that we become a second light people. May it be so in our time for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. Mm -hmm.